Welcome to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast, where we try to understand authoritarianism and how it works in order to better resist it. Iran is a country which has been constantly in the news in recent years, if not decades. It's one of the most populous countries in the Middle East, with a vibrant culture and a rich history going back thousands of years, including countless contributions to human civilization. Unfortunately, today it is led by a theocratic dictatorship which has crushed and oppressed its society, attempted to develop nuclear weapons, and exerted a massively destabilizing influence on the region and around the globe, from its bloody intervention in Syria, to its proxies in Lebanon and Yemen, and beyond. We've spoken about its foreign policy before, in episode 2 of this podcast, and episode 3 was a look at the waves of mass protests that gripped the country at the start of this year, 2018. Today's episode is a conversation between Iyad al-Baghdadi and Maryam Nayeb Yazdi, a Canadian-Iranian human rights activist and a good friend of ours who has been a major influence in our understanding of the country. The conversation is about Maryam and her journey into activism and why she does what she does, but it's so rich in context that it effectively serves as a primer into Iran since 2009, as well as some of the background, including the Islamic Revolution, the Iran-Iraq War and the MEK. So just as an introduction for the audience, Mariam, and I know that a lot of people who follow me would already know who you are. I mean, I know you as an Iranian freedom activist, and I know you have, you've actually been in, in activism longer than I have been because you became an activist in 2009 with the 2009 Iranian uprising. And you've been at it since then. And, you know, it's been, you know, all the ups and downs of the Iranian freedom movement uh, since then. You've basically lived through it in slow motion. So can you tell us a little bit about how, how did you become an activist? When did you catch the activism bug? I guess our stories are sort of similar in that sense on how we started. Uh, I was, I guess I was triggered by the Iranian uprising in 2009 and uh, before that, I was not involved in activism. I would not have ever called myself a human rights activist. But I was starting to become more conscious and start to feel uneasy inside that, you know, I need to do something more in this world. I started to feel very unfulfilled. B- before activism, I was in the world of publishing and, and I wanted to be an editor for a top magazine or something. And I really was interested in the media and I was working at a small media company. But then when the uprising happened in Iran, I just sort of had an awakening experience um, when I saw the people, uh, the Iranian people in the streets. And you weren't, you weren't living in Iran at the time. I grew up in Canada. So I left in 1989 from Mashhad, Iran, with my mom and dad and my brother. And we moved to Toronto, Canada in 1989. And we filed for asylum. And we got accepted as conventional refugees. And basically, I've lived my my whole life there in Toronto. And I was very far removed from the Iran situation. Living in North America, especially, you're just so isolated from the rest of the world. You sort of feel like you're the center of the world. And I did have uh, sort of the same mentality as some people, a lot of people have today, which is sort of like, that's another country and another, it's, that's another world. It has nothing to do with me. And yes, there's human rights violations there. And yes, uh, the people don't th- there don't have the same rights as me in Canada, but that's none of my business. That's their culture. 
Mm. So even though you were Iranian yourself... Yes, yes. And I'm not the only Iranian with that attitude. Many Iranians have that attitude. It's sort of like, well, that happens there. There's nothing I can do about it. They, they've accepted their lives, so they're making do with what they have. And I never saw it as like, we as free people can help make a difference in that part of the world, in, in closed society countries. But in 2009, when I saw the people on the streets, it was such a simple thing that, that had led me to my awakening experience. I saw Iranians who looked like they were around my age. I was 26 years old at, at, in 2009. They were risking their lives to take photos and videos of what's, what was happening in the streets, of the, the police crackdown, the, the security force crackdown, of the protests, the, the, the slogans of the people. So I thought, okay, well, I already know the internet sucks there. It's, it, it takes forever to just load a video and send it over. And it's also very risky because you can very well get arrested or tortured or even killed for such an act. So I thought, okay, if they're risking so much to, to do something so simple, like send a video or photo online, it's my duty as a free person to spread it. That's what they want. They want us to spread it. Why else would they risk their lives? And really, it's something so simple like that that has led me to nine years of activism, where I just felt useful. I felt that I can make a difference. Even though if I cannot change the regime, I cannot do that. But at the same time, I can make a difference, as small as it is. Then in July 2009, Michael Jackson had passed away. And the media before July 2009 was very focused on Iran and what was happening. Iran election was the top trending hashtag on, mm. on Twitter for so long. So, so just for a bit of context for, for the audience, in 2009, there were these elections in, in Iran, and there was this massive fraud allegations that actually made the Iranian people feel that this election has been stolen. So, I mean, the, the idea that, you know, the, the elections in Iran, the presidential elections are free, and, they're, they're not free and fair is not a new one. Iranians... They don't believe that the, the elections are free and fair. Mm. However, after the Obama presidency, when Obama became president in 2008, it sort of created all this excitement around the world. So even we saw that the 2009 presidential elections, the candidates were sort of trying to emulate the same things that the presidential election in the U.S. was doing. So I, I think here it's, it's important to add this uh, little bit of information about the way that elections happen in Iran in a sense that it's a selection rather than an election. Yes. So it's basically the supreme leader and the guardian council who pick who can run, and then they present this menu to the people, So, but the people don't have any choice, correct? To... Correct, correct. So hundreds of people will apply to, to run for presidency, and the supreme leader will pick like five or six, and then they would, they would run for president. And obviously the supreme leader would select candidates who he trusts to a certain extent. So what happened was uh, Musavi, Mir Hossein Musavi and Mehdi Karubi were candidates at that time. Both of these individuals, part of the, the Iranian government establishment and had very important posts in this government at some point. Musavi, I believe, was the prime minister in the 80s in Iran. What Musavi and Karubi did is they were really trying to emulate Obama's 
campaign and, and, and their campaigning. Yeah, like the will of the people. Yes, we can. That whole type of thing they were doing. And and what the the most important thing Musavi and Karabi did, which made them popular among the Iranian civil society youth, which is the majority population in Iran, especially at that time, 2009, over 70% of the Iranian population was under the age of 30. Uh, so what Musavi and Karabi did is they did this whole tour of all the universities in Iran. So they would go to, in, you know, in Iran, the, 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 the civil rights movements always start in the universities or from the workers, like the workers' rights movement or the students' rights movements or the women's rights movement. They're all kind of interconnected. So Musiev and Karabi knew that very well. So they would go to all these universities and talk to the students, activists there and the leaders. And they said, well, if you wanted to support you, you have to talk about women's rights, you have to talk about this. So they made their... So, so the students put their own demands. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So the students were the ones that sort of shaped the campaign for Musavi and Karabi. And although Musavi and Karabi, we, we don't know if they really truly believed in everything that they were standing behind, but they knew that they had to in order to get the votes from the youth. And so that's what happened. And then Musavi and Karabi, through that process, became known as the reformist candidates, the ones that were standing for rights, uh, human rights, civil rights. And then also, it was the very first time in presidential elections that we saw televised debates. Mm. That was really, really important because it was the first time that there was a space within the Iranian civil society to talk freely and openly about politics and be able to choose a side. And for the first time, Iranians felt like, you know, there's a candidate that they could actually go behind and feel comfortable with that. So what happens was Iranians felt emboldened, in a sense, and they started to speak out. So when, when Ahmadinejad won the presidency with over 60% votes, the Iranians were like, come on, this is ridiculous. And, um, and there were incidents where even uh, people actually have evidence of, of the fraud, right? I think so. I think before Ahmadinejad was announced president, they had announced that Musavi had won. Mm. And then later on, it became Ahmadinejad. So I'm not really sure. You never know really what's happening behind closed doors. I mean, Khamenei, the supreme leader, his number one fear is the Iranian people. Mm. So, And this is a point that I think uh, in, in our previous conversations you repeated. And of course, it's a, it's a point that I definitely believe. But I think this, this is a point worth uh, dwelling on for a bit. Mm. That even though these dictators might, might appear to be very formidable, they're actually most afraid of their own people. And this is why the, this, the, all of their security apparatus, all of their, you know, their, their best brains are basically put on uh, this task of controlling the population. Absolutely. Controlling and suppressing the population. It's not just the Iranian regime. That's how most dictators operate. And they spend a lot of money on this propaganda, and not only inside their country, but also abroad, throughout the diaspora, and uh, the Western media, and also academia. They really infiltrate these institutions. So here we have a situation where, you know, this, this kind of backfired on them because it was their own people who were trying to express their own, their own agency. And then what we have was a stolen election. So I think Khamenei made a huge mistake that he probably regretted after. Because had he allowed Musavi to win, I think we would have had a similar situation like what we have with Rouhani right now. Because I don't think Musavi would have been able to make fundamental changes within the system. Um, I don't think that's really possible in Iran. I don't think Khamenei or anybody actually, or even Iranians inside or outside, anticipated what ensued. I don't think anyone anticipated those huge, massive uprisings to occur, but they did. And they were very peaceful. Initially, they were even silent. And then obviously, the 
we see we saw with the Arab Spring and everything, you know, the regime cracks down brutally. And then and that's how it becomes, a there's a backlash. And that's how they become sort of radicalized protests afterwards. You know, the protesters don't have guns or anything. They don't have any means of protecting themselves. So, you know, they were, they were fairly nonviolent protests. In July 2009, though, after Michael Jackson died, the media stopped paying attention to what was happening in Iran, even though the Iranians were still in the streets, even though they were still dying and they were being arrested. The media stopped paying attention. So I was still working at this time on Iran. And I decided, you know, I cannot abandon the Iranian people. They need us. And so I started a website called Persian to English. And basically, we just started to translate the human rights reports that were coming out of Iran by reputable sources and translating them to English and other languages and then sending them to the media for the media to to cover Iran. Because after the media stopped paying attention to Iran, all the news was in Persian. They just weren't being translated. So I just did something very simple, translate. And then my site became quite popular because nobody else was doing it. We would publish about nine to 10 translations a day. And it was really intense. Like I night from morning till night, that's all I would do. It was my life. There was no money in it. So you were not funded by anyone. I was not funded. It was a volunteer project. It was volunteer. And also there's a, at that time especially, there was a stigma attached to gaining funding, raising funds for human rights. I think there was no uh, awareness that this is actually human beings who need to actually make a living. Yes. So it was basically seen as uh, suspicious whenever you're making a career out of out of human rights. Absolutely. And And we've sort of grown to see human rights as, okay, well, if you want to be a human rights activist, you need to go work for one of the existing NGOs, either volunteer or, or something so like that. So the idea of independent activist, that was kind of... That was a new thing. So I was sort of like, I threw myself in this new thing that didn't really exist. And had it existed before, they were suffering like me as well. There was no money in it. So I never, even the, the thought of raising funds didn't even occur to me. I thought, no, that's... that's not that I was against it. I'm not against raising funds. It was just that I didn't want to risk the work. I didn't want to risk people not paying attention to what was happening or risk delegitimizing our work. Yeah. So talk to us about what happened later in 2009 and 2010 and then 2011. I mean, what happened over those two years? Well, from, from June 2009 to December 2009, it was constant protests. These protests differed from the Arab Spring protests because the Arab Spring protests were very consistent. They were every day. Iranians did not do it every day. They would use special occasions in Iran as an excuse to protest. So, Quds Day, existing days of the calendar that the regime values. So, Quds Day, and then Tassu and Ashura in December. Are, some, some of these are kind of regime holidays, and some of them are basically commemoration days. Some of them are religious holidays. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So so the Iranian people use these days to protest. So, for example, on Quds Day uh, in the streets, the pro-regime people will go in the streets and, and chant, you know, death to America, death to Israel. I mean, just for context, uh, Quds Day is basically Jerusalem Day, that, which was a day kind of invented by the, uh, by the Iranian regime for solidarity with Palestine, of course. <laughs> As a Palestinian, I, I'm used to dictators kind of hiding behind the Palestinian cause mm. and then suppressing their own people uh, in the name of Palestine, which is, of course, incredibly offensive for us as Palestinians. Normally, you'd have masses chanting against America and against Israel, right? So, but then the protesters use this occasion 
to turn it into a protest for, for Iranian freedom. Absolutely. So the loudspeaker in the streets was saying, down, well, Marg bar Israel, Marg bar Amrika. Marg bar means death too, but um, in, the, in this context, it means down with. I mean, the regime might actually mean death too, but <laughs> the people, when they're, when they're chanting it back, they're, they don't really mean death. They mean just down with that establishment. So the, the, the people's response to death to Israel, death to America was down with China, down with Russia. Okay, so these were uh, countries <laughs> that were seen to be colluding or at least allies of the Iranian regime. Yes, yeah. correct. And, and the chants of the people were down with the supreme leader, down with the entire establishment, down with the dictator. Mm. There were very clear messages. So, so can you tell us about how, I mean, I would imagine that initially, uh, of course, you're the expert over here, but I would imagine that the, the initial protests would be about the election. And then as time would go on, they would become more radical and they would be, you know, talking more about the regime itself. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Mm. Uh, the, the, the first initial chants were, where is my vote? And then once the regime started to crack down, that's when the ch- chants became more radicalized in a sense. And then after Ash- Tasu and Ashura, that, that happened in December, to the, late December 2009. I believe it was December 26th or 27th. Don't quote me on that. I think it was that. You know, it seems like a big blur sometimes. Well, it, is, it is interesting that, you know, like uh, it, it's like nine years later. I know. <laughs> I still remember the date. Yeah. I mean, because I, I mean, I remember missing Christmas with my family and working for 48 hours straight and not sleeping. And there was so much brutality that occurred on those two days. This was actually a religious occasion. It was, yeah. Rel- Tasu and Ashura are, are, is a religious occasion. And it's actually a really big deal in Iran. Mm. And, and the people that were in the streets are not anti-Islam in any way. Mm. Actually, a lot of them are Muslim. Well, the interesting thing is that Tasu and Ashura are basically marking the martyrdom of uh, the Prophet's grandson, who is, again, himself seen as, uh, as a figure who stood up to tyranny and gave his life for it. So it's really interesting that the Iranian regime tried to actually take over this to say this is our day, <laughs> and then the people use those same days to to protest them and to to chant them down. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, actually, the people are sort of like Imam Hussein in this situation. Yeah, it was very interesting. Uh, but then after Tasu and Ashura, I mean, that was the most radical protest we had seen um, since probably 1979. They got very bloody, and the people were even like knocking down police cars, burning down police stations. It got really, really radical. And I think all the factions of the regime, including the so-called reformists, got scared mm-hmm. because they saw that these people are, you know, as I said, their number one fear is the Iranian people. They saw that, oh, my goodness. Things are getting out of control. Yeah, out of control. We have to stop this. That was, that this was, was in, late 2009. Uh, yes. Yeah. And then in February 2010, to mark the anniversary of the revolution, yeah, the Iranian right. revolution of 1979, and the regime was prepared. They had because again, Iranians were not consistent in staying in the streets. So from late December, they had the regime had an entire month in January to prepare, to prepare. Hmm. and the reformists, everybody, sort of united to to suppress the people. You mean the regimes? The Regime reform. Yeah, the different factions. They united to suppress the people. They wanted to stop this. They saw it going out of hand. They were afraid of, you know, the, the Western authorities using this to as an excuse to attack Iran. They were afraid of emboldening uh, the opposition outside of Iran, such as the MEK or, or the other uh, factions of the opposition. So they were really scared of that, about that. 
So in on February, I believe it was 11th, the, to mark the anniversary of the revolution, the people headed to the streets, but the Iranian authorities had, was already stationed in all the areas where they thought that the people would be going. And the reform, there was a reformist website at the time called Jadas. They actually print, uh, published maps telling people where they should go protest wow. days before the actual protest, which is gave the regime more than enough time to, yeah. to know where exactly to station their troops. Yes. Yeah. So the protests were suppressed before they even started. It was a, a hard time. And then we didn't, then we didn't, then the protests became less frequent, but they did a, occur until 2011. They, they continued until 2011. So talk to us about that moment, you know, when the Arab Spring started. And this is something that uh, a lot of people who might follow me because of the Arab Spring might actually miss this. But there were there was another wave of Iranian protests uh, as part of this Iranian uprising in solidarity with the Arab Spring. Yes. So that happened in 2011. And that was really sort of the last protest we saw. Mass protests. I mean, there's protests in Iran every day. We should note that. There's workers protesting every day. There's people protesting corruption every day or the environment or whatever. But, you know, these mass protests really kind of stopped in 2011. And we didn't really see them again until recently in uh, December, January 2017, 18. Mm-hmm. So in 2011, uh, Musavi and Karabi. Uh, so these these were the the, the, the candidates, candidates from the previous election who had uh, had a stolen election. Yes. Yeah. So Khamenei had sort of announced, I think it was in 2010, that these two individuals are will never have a place in the regime again. So he kind of ousted them from it. So I guess Musavi and Karabi saw that you know they had to cut their losses with the regime. So they they called their first of all their language got more radical uh, towards Khamenei and the regime establishment. Um, but they never would denounce the Islamic Republic and they would never not denounce the revolution because they were part of it. Musavi was a prime minister in, in the 80s. So they, they actually always talk very highly of Khomeini still. So their problem is with Khamenei and Ahmadinejad. So they're acting like all the problems in Iran started with them. Yeah, so basically they're against the government, but not against the regime itself. No, I don't know about that. I mean, I'm not in their head, but they'll never talk behind. They'll never, they'll never talk bad about Khomeini or the actual revolution of 1979. Anywho, they, they, uh, called for solidarity protests in, on February, February 12th. It was in solidarity with Egypt and Tunisia. And so the Iranians went into the streets. Obviously, it was just an excuse to protest, but it obviously Iranians do care about what was happening there. You know, Iranians headed to the streets. There were protests. Uh, protesters died. Two of them are sort of symbols now of those protests. And then I think about a, a week or so after those protests, Musavi and Karabi were put under house arrest. And they've been under house arrest since 2011. They were sort of like the leaders of these protests. You say sort of. It's almost as if they're coincidental leaders or basically the movements started to become bigger than them. Yeah. Yeah, they, they didn't never wanted to be leaders of the movement. And Musavi and Karabi have both issued multiple statements before 2011 saying, we are not the leaders, you, you people are the leaders. But the people sort of, they weren't ready to be their own leaders. So they're like, no, you're the leader. <laughs> and so they, they didn't really want to accept the leadership position. That was sort of the thing. And 
But so, so when they were put under house arrest, Iranians sort of, everything just died because there was so, no leader. So leaderless. There was, it was leaderless. And then also the Arab Spring started. And I believe, was it that summer, uh, 2011? Well, the, the Arab Spring, uh, official, the official date that we normally use is 17th of December, t- 2010. Oh, okay. Uh, however, I think by summer, it was it was the, the Libyan revolution had become a civil war. There was an in, international intervention. Yeah. And then things started to slide towards violence in Syria as well. Mm. Of course, the Iranian regime would later intervene in Syria on behalf of Assad. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's one of the biggest grudges that Arabs have against the Iranian regime. Mm-hmm. But also, I think it's became Syria became kind of this international uh, every dictator who wants to warn his people against protesting is like you, you you're going to become like Syria. Exactly. Exactly. Same thing happened in Iran, actually. But so yeah, so we didn't see any any more protests until December 2017. So everything just died. So imagine a week after those protests, Musavin Karbi placed under house arrest. There's no more protests, but all of a sudden, there's mass executions. Wow. The execution rate in 2011 was devastating. It wasn't the usual people that were executing people with drug charges or murder charges or rape charges. Those people were still being executed in high numbers, of course. They have to keep their, their numbers up for executions. But they were ex- executing a lot of political prisoners. Hmm. So, and what was their excuse? I mean, pr- normally when the Iranian regime... NEK uh, sympathizers. Uh, like when international community complains about the, 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 the execution rate in Iran, the Iranian regime would actually say something like, these are all drug charges, and we're protecting the rest of the world mm-hmm. from this scourge of drugs. Yes. But it seems that in that year, it wasn't really about drugs. It was all political. Well, well no. Still, the majority of the executions were drug-related. And the Iranian, uh, the Iranian authorities are very careful about how many political executions they carry out because they know there's more of a cost for each one. So they're very strategic. So in 2011, it was... They executed, like... I don't remember exactly, like two or three MEK supporters. And, and tell us a bit about the MEK. I hear a lot from different Iranians, and it seems to be that they're an organization which is mistrusted by, by a lot of Iranians, but also an organization which is used by the Iranian regime as kind of, if, if, you, if you don't like someone, just say he's MEK. Yeah, the Mojahideen Khalq was one of the main... That's the MEK, right? The MEK. They go by the MEK now. Before it was the MKO. It's really confusing. But anyway, the Mujahideen Khalq in Iran, not to be mistaken with the one in Afghanistan, I believe there's one in Afghanistan, they were one of the main groups that helped the revolution happen. They were against uh, having a supreme leadership position. And Khomeini came into power. He's, you know, he imprisoned and exiled many of the opposition, many of the people who helped the revolution happen, the people that helped him come into power. And I think this is something that a lot of people don't realize that the fact that in 1979, the Iranian uprising itself, the Iranian revolution was not really just Khomeini. It was basically this, this very broad coalition, very popular uprising. It was stolen by Khomeini. Who went on to purge all of his other, you know, even the people who helped make the revolution happen, right? Correct, correct. And also, like, even having an Islamic Republic was sort of forced on the people. Like, my mom was telling me how, you know, my mom was part of the revolution. My dad was part of the revolution. They supported having a revolution. Yeah, but they, they weren't exactly, they, they didn't go to the streets because they wanted an, uh, an, an Iranian, uh, uh, sorry, uh, an Islamic Republic. No, we didn't even know what that meant, really. And so my mom was telling me how she was walking to the voting polls and she she wanted to vote and it wasn't a confidential vote. 
They were watching her. Yes to Islamic Republic or no to Islamic Republic. So this you is the referendum. Choices. This was the referendum that came after the uh, the, the revolution. Yes, uh, yes to Islamic Republic or no to Islamic Republic. And my mom voted no, and she said she was harassed the entire way home. Mm. So, so it was intimidation. Intimidation. You know, these people came into power corruptly, mm-hmm. and they had to, as you said, purge the opposition in order to do mm. so. So one of those groups was the MEK. One of these groups was the MEK, um, and the MEK then is different than the MEK now, or even after the revolution. A lot of the people that are, some of the people that are in the regime now actually supported the MEK. Mm, at some point. Yeah, and then they split up. Mm. And then Masoud Rajavi was one of the MEK people. Mm. He was put into prison, and then he was released. And then he became the leader of the MEK. Mm. They left, they went to Iraq. Very very, very quickly after the Iranian uh, revolution of 1979, the Iran-Iraq war started. Yes. And this was actually a war, I mean, it's pretty widely acknowledged that it was a war of aggression by Saddam against uh, Iran. Uh, but of course, he had his own uh, his, his own plans. He also was afraid of the, the prospect of an Islamic revolution mm-hmm. in Iraq. Mm. And I think one of the, one of the strongest uh, narratives and the, the, the biggest grievances that I keep hearing from Iranians against the MEK is that they stood with Saddam against their own country. Yes. So Saddam gave the MEK a, a, a base in Iraq called Camp Ashraf, gave them weapons, and MEK went with Saddam to Iran to fight this regime. And that was a devastating war, and uh, Saddam used chemical weapons. And it's been described as the Middle Eastern uh, World War One in terms of trench warfare, massive casualties, mm. use of chemical weapons... Mm really brutal and the, the the human loss was just enormous yeah we're still paying the price for that war today iranians are psychologically i'll tell you that so iranians have a very negative image of the mek because of that the fact that they sided with saddam iranians are very nationalist you know like that's the biggest treason like to to side with Saddam. Anyway, so the MEK has their side of the story. They deny a lot of the things. Like they, they say we never killed innocent Iranians, you know, we were our revolution was stolen, it's our right to be there, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And obviously, as as you mentioned, the, the the regime sees the MEK as like, you know, it's their boogeyman. So up to two thousand three they were allowed to operate from from inside Iraq. Yes. And, uh, and then they were disarmed and they sort of had to renounce violence in order to stay relevant. You know? it, was, it was kind of like someone took their guns away rather than, yeah. rather than them saying, hey, we don't, we, this is not good. Yeah, or something. yeah I mean, I'm, I'm sure if someone give, gave the MEK guns tomorrow, they would definitely use them. The Iranians say, you know, if, if the MEK came into power, we don't know if they would be any better than the... Uh, exactly, the and I, I think that's, that's what I was going to say. So yeah. It's not like these guys are kind of liberal Democrats. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, th- there is the other side to this, which is that the Iranian regime seems to kind of pin this charge upon anyone, whoever he is, if, you know, uh, because this is the easy way. Like, if you're an MEK supporter, that means, like, we can, we can basically kill you. Absolutely. And, and also, like, you know, if you, let's say, you're MEK sympathizer or you have that label attached to you, and you escape Iran and you go to Turkey and you claim us and you file for asylum. If you are affiliated with MEK, they will not grant you asylum. Yeah, because you're seen as a militant. Exactly. So this is perfect for the Iranian regime. They can just label anyone they want MEK and kill them. 
and the world will sort of not say anything like, well, they were kind of linked with the yeah, MAK. This is really interesting because, you know, in, in Arab countries, they use Al-Qaeda or they use ISIS or they use even the Muslim Brotherhood recently, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where they say, you know, the, the moment you, you associate someone with that. Yeah. And the thing is, a lot of the time it's spurious. It's not even true, but yeah. uh, but it's just such a powerful, powerful charge to bring up against someone that it can kind of ruin his reputation. Not only, I mean, even as you said, even if he actually escapes death. Absolutely. The propaganda is so strong. I mean, as I said, I grew up in Toronto, Canada. Uh, my family is in no way affiliated with the MEK. My family is not even political. But there's a very strong rumor that exists to this day, nine years later, that I am an MEK. <laughs> and for me... Why? Because you weren't... Uh, well, I mean, where did that come from? It's just like just regime propaganda? Um, it's because I don't support the reformist narrative and also because I speak to all Iranians. I don't discriminate whether you're a reformist or a communist or a supporter of Reza Pahlavi or the, you know, or the MEK. I won't not talk to you because you're supporting that political group. I'm, I may not you know, attend your events because that's just not my, that's not what I'm doing. I'm not a political activist necessarily. I'm working on I mean, human you're not rights. A politician. I'm not a politician. Yeah. And, and also like at the end of the day, no matter who comes into power next after the current regime in Iran, I'm still going to be on the side of human rights. It's not like I'm going to be advocating for someone to come into power. Let's say another government comes into place of the Iranian regime and they are abusing regime supporters of the former regime, I would stand up for their rights. Hmm. You know, I'm all about the human rights and ma- so making we, sure we, we have a healthy of, transition. We kind of had a, a break in the timeline. because We, we kind of left, left the narrative at the, the moment when, in 2011, when the uprisings kind of went very quiet. Yes. And we talked about how the Syrian situation kind of escalated and that kind of, again, uh, distracted a lot of people. And it was basically cynically used by a lot of governments to actually say, Hey, this is what happens if you actually have uh, any kind of if you think about about an uprising. So then we move into 2012, 2013, and this is when, as you mentioned, the 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 execution rate goes up, and it seems. I mean, the way that I would interpret it is that the moment a regime feels empowered and feels not no longer threatened, it actually becomes more repressive, not less repressive. Around that 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 time, that's when we started hearing about the Iran deal or what was what what is today called the Iran deal this mm-hmm. is when uh, we started first hearing about the prospect of kind of an agreement and lifting sanctions etc from our previous conversations i know that you have i mean you're not against engagement but you're definitely against any kind of engagement that ignores or comes at the cost of human rights yes so so talk to me a little bit about what did you feel in the mood and in your activism once this kind of narrative that hey we need to we need to engage with the regime with the Iranian regime etc how did that affect your activism yeah so i guess I, let me just backtrack a little bit in 2011 when the protests were suppressed and then everything became about executions and torture and prison i stayed and many people left so like, many people abandoned activism at this many point. people abandoned uh, activism yeah so in 2009 there was a lot of new activists born like me hmm. we, we didn't really call ourselves activists we were just standing in solidarity. Once you start doing media interviews and they want to give you a title, then you have to say something. You know, I actually want to be called a freedom activist. And they said that 
there's no such thing. <laughs> You're, we're going to call you a human rights activist. I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> Anyways, so my world became very dark in 2000, from 2011 to, I would say, 2014. It was a very dark time in my life where a lot of the people that were born activists in 2009 sort of went back to their everyday lives. When I don't blame them, you know, there was no money in this. And, you, you know, if you have especially kids or family or you have to, you have to make money. So I understand that. It's tough. And so I stayed and many, many people went. And so now I had to start translating myself sometimes. It just became very, very hard to do everything. And I was also working on political prisoner campaigns, trying to get people off death row, political prisoners, prisoners of conscience, the prisoners of conscience. uh, So the the same student rights leaders that supported Musavi and Karabi and helped their candidacy, they were all in prison from 2009. And sometimes they would go on hunger strike or, you know, uh, they would be denied medical care. And I had to report on all this. I had to keep it alive. These people- so, so basically what happened here is that once the, 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 uh, the uprising movement itself was, uh, was crushed, the activism itself moved from covering protests and covering statements to following on the cases of these people who are now being targeted and put on death row and being tortured. or Yes. So keep in mind, I never actually aspired to be a human rights activist. So when I started in 2009, it just was an urgent situation. So from 2009 to 2011, my entire life every day was urgent, 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 urgent. So, you know, my mom would say, Miriam, we're going to the cabin for the weekend. Are you going to come? No, mom, I can't. Khamenei just released a statement. Now I have to work on it. And, and then my mom said, Miriam, these people, they're always going to commit a crime. You're basing your whole life on what they are doing. You cannot live like this. I said, yeah, yeah, mom, but I got to do it. So I like totally ignored what she said. Later on, I came to the same conclusion. The whole point is that when it's urgent, the, the dictator is running your agenda. Yes, right? but, but at that time, it was just street protests. and But... Those same street protesters or the organizers of these student protests, now they're in prison or now they're getting a death sentence or now they're being tortured. Now they're going on hunger strike. I cannot abandon them. Those are the same people that were in the streets. And that's how you become a human rights activist. You don't choose to be a human rights activist or aspire to be one, but somehow you end up being one because you're still cleaning up the mess that was caused by these protests. So I changed my activism in 2013. Because I remember my mom's words in 2013. And this kind of coincided with the talks about the Iran deal. So how did that, you know, how did you receive the news? Oh, yes. Um, so the whole Iran talks started brewing, I would say, in 2012, nearing the end of the summer 2012, when Bashar Assad, in summer 2012, I believe it was, Bashar Assad was at his weakest. And Hillary Clinton had issued a statement saying, Bashar Assad, your days are numbered. And the world was on the side of the Syrian people at that time, I believe. And the Iranian regime got very, very scared that if the Assad regime falls, that they were going to be next. And so, so it was the they moment, went to work. So it was a moment of weakness that made the Iranian regime come to the table. Oh, yeah. So we're not even there yet. So in 2012, Assad's you know, weak, all that. So the Iranian regime, and then there was an election coming up in in Iran, presidential election, four years later after 2009. It was supposed to happen in June 2013. 
Um, so Iranian regime starts to prepare for that. So we started getting intelligence from inside Iran by, by defectors of the IRGC, who had told us that the regime is on its path to create this reformist illusion again. They're going to the reform illusion again. They're going to introduce a candidate in 2013 that's going to claim reform. And this is how they're going to suppress the people and to ensure that they're not going to have an uprising. They were concerned that the Iranians were going to boycott the 2013 election because they still have the memories of 2009. And not, not, nothing had changed in, in, in Iran from 2009 to 2013. It just got worse. Everything was just falling apart. And there were sanctions and the, the, the people's lives were miserable. So the reformists and the regime, everyone teamed up to convince the Iranians to come and vote. And a lot of the people in 2013 who are now voting, who are now 18 years old and able, like, you know, people, they were, they were young in 2009. They don't even remember the uprising. So this is sort of a new generation of people now that are voting. And so Rouhani came to the table and, you know, he stepped up and he's claiming reforms. So let's keep in mind that Rouhani would have never been able to run if he did not have the green light from Khamenei. So obviously Khamenei selected candidates who he believed he trusted, basically. And so Rouhani becomes the president and my life changes again overnight. Before Rouhani, I was the good guy in, in a way because I'm working on human rights. And it's, it's Ahmadinejad. And, and it's Ahmadinejad. So it's easy to talk about human rights when you have you have Ahmadinejad in power. Yes. But once you have the smiling face of Rouhani. No one wants to talk about human rights anymore. And then I became, they started to demonize me. And by they, I mean people in the mainstream, the media, the, the not media, really. They, they sort of just boycotted me in a way. Mm. And so it, there was no interest anymore in that, uh, in human rights because, hey, these guys are reforming. And it's not, it's not the journalist's fault necessarily because they could be interested. It's really the editor's fault. They put them on tight timeframes and the editors tell them, you know, we have to talk about Iran, but if it's not about Rouhani, I don't want it published. Hmm. So if it's not about Rouhani, they don't want it published. That's, that's basically where it is. So I'm not against engagement in any way, but I believe that in order to create change, you have to change the behavior of the Iranian authorities. Mm. And you cannot change the behavior of the Iranian authorities if you're ignoring human rights. Because every time you ignore human rights, you are ignoring Iranian civil society because they don't have any human rights. And whenever you're ignoring Iranian civil society, you're contributing to the weakening of Iranian civil society. And the weaker the Iranian civil society becomes, the less vocal they are the less confident they are to speak out. So they cannot act as a check on their own government. Yes. And as I mentioned, the number one fear of the Iranian regime is the Iranian people. So if we actually want to change the behavior of the Iranian regime, we have to strengthen Iranian civil society and empower Iranian native agents of change who are the ones that are going to place the pressure needed on the Iranian authorities to change their behavior. And what you feel is that the Iran deal talks that would happen into Rouhani's uh, pres presidential term ignored that. Yes, because the whole mentality was, if we talk about, if we mention human rights in, on the negotiating table, we are going to anger some factions of the regime 
that are more quote unquote hardliner. Hmm. And there, there was this other narrative at the time that I, I remember was it was it was all about denuclearization, and I, and we've seen the same thing happen with North Korea now. Yeah, where there's too much of a focus, like oh, this is not about human rights. We care about that, but that's not really the topic of the deal. It's just about removing the the the, the nuclear weapons, or you know, m- making sure that they don't get nuclear weapons. And that kind of becomes this 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 uh, kind of grand excuse that makes it so easy to completely ignore human rights, and like it almost sounds rational. Well, I mean, look, you can stop their n- nuclear activities. Like, let's just talk about the Iranian regime. You can stop their nuclear activities. You can pressure them to stop it. If you're not pressuring them to change their behavior, you're still going to see a lot of destruction. So, look, they made a deal with the Iranian regime. Then the Iranian regime is funding proxy wars. They're causing destruction in the region and inside the country. Nothing has changed. We have not seen a change in the Iranian regime's behavior. So what has the Americans or the West, what have they gained from the nuclear deal? Nothing. What have well, they gained? Well, they say that, you know, the if, if you ask them, yeah, uh, they would say that the main thing is that Iran is not going to become a nuclear uh, country. I, I don't really have anything to say to that because... I have a very unpopular viewpoint on nuclear stuff. I don't see it as well, I, this I number kind of, one threat. I mean, I mean, I kind of agree with you. I think there's even some really, really important American generals have actually said, even Colin Powell actually once said that even though he has been trained about how to deploy nuclear weapons, even since the 1950s during the Cold War, and he has he, he is on record saying that nuclear weapons are useless in a sense that they cannot be used. So I feel that this, I mean, I, I mean, this is my opinion. I feel I, I agree with you that too much of a focus on nuclear weapons is, is sometimes kind of like putting blinkers on and not really realizing, looking at the big picture, because it doesn't really ma- give you more stability. And per- perhaps the Iran deal is one example of that, because as you said, the behavior of the regime did not change. It doesn't have nuclear weapons, and maybe the nuclear weapons program has been stopped, but it's still as repressive as ever inside and as disruptive and as destructive as, as ever outside. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and then they lifted the sanctions and then the the whole their whole excuse about ignoring human rights was, you know, once the economy improves, then somehow magically the human rights situation will improve. I, I don't really understand that theory, but we have not seen any evidence of that. So anyways, they've had the new nucle- they, they have the Iran deal. The economy in Iran is very horrible. Iranians are suffering today from the economy. Rouhani has not lived up to his campaign promises, and Iranians are quite disenchanted by Rouhani. So, so we have the situation. I mean, I, I actually wanted to ask you about Obama in particular, because you, you mentioned we started the conversation with you saying that, I mean, it's almost like this whole saga started with in 2008. Yes. With all of this excitement about Obama, you know, you know yes, we can, etc. And by the time he leaves and hands over to Trump, the situation has 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 seen such a dramatic su- such dramatic effects because we went from you know uprising to despair to repression to talks but what would be your assessment of of those 8 years under obama there how did they reflect on on iranian civil society yeah i mean iranians when they were in the streets in 2009 there was only one authority figure that they they chanted to, and that was Obama. They said, Obama, Obama, ya ba'una, ya ba'ma, which means Obama, Obama, you're either with them or with us, and them is the Iranian regime. And 
So, but, but, but from, you know, seeing everything play out, I can say that in 2000, and, I would say 11 slash 12, there was sort of some genuine interest by the Western authorities to support some form of opposition in Iran because they saw that the regime was just so brutal and relentless. There was no opposition that had popular support mm. by oh. the people. Mm. So there's the, there's the MEK, there's all these other sort of opposition groups that are not really so that seems established. To be, this seems to be like a recurring theme with dictatorships because dictatorships clamp down on the opposition so severely that no opposition actually arises. What I mean, it almost seems completely unrealistic to expect an, an actually mature opposition to arise under a very, very brutal dictatorship. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I'm not saying that, and, and the thing is, Obama, like any other president, I don't want to just target Obama because it's not just him. It's any president. It's just the system in America that's, that's flawed. You know, when you have a four-year term, maybe you'll get another four years, a maximum eight-year term. You just want to leave a legacy for yourself as a president. And so for Obama, his legacy was, well, there was the Obamacare and then there was Iran deal. So in 2011-12, although they were sort of looking into supporting some type of opposition, they didn't have much time. So they, they have short-term goals, governments. They don't have long-term goals. And that's the problem because of their uh, limited time frame and power. So as a result of that, they didn't really give a chance for any type of opposition to form. They could have put funding, they could have put money into it. And, and I mean, they could have facilitated something. They, they like could that. have. They could have done so many things which they didn't do. And so for them, it was easier to support a faction from within the regime that claims that they want, that they're moderates and, mm. you know. So they found it easier to invest in the so-called reformist camp within the Iranian regime, which was associated with Rouhani and Jawad Zarif and... You know, Absolutely. I mean, for, for Western governments, unfortunately, they're less concerned about the civil societies uh, and they're more concerned about whether that government, whether they're a dictatorship or not, are they willing to cooperate with us or not? Hmm. Like, look at Saudi, you know, they're cooperating. Whoever's willing to cooperate, then that's cool. That's our guy. That's our guy. So Rouhani and Zarif, they were willing to cooperate. They're all, you know, pro-West in some ways. And so they said, okay, well, this is, this is the path we're going. So the minute Obama made that decision or the U.S. government, the EU made that decision, I became the bad guy. Uh, so, so basically there was a turn on attitude and suddenly you, as a human rights activist, became kind of the war party. They looked at you as, you know, you're either with us yeah. or you're with war. Yeah. I was even attacked online People attacking me, questioning me why I'm campaigning for Saeed Malikpur. And I even that. Yeah, even that. And I said, why? They're like, well, you're trying to save one person's life. And as a result, you're giving ammunition to the West to attack Iran. And also, I should mention that there, in 2010, they started a campaign. This, this whole anti-war campaign started in 2010. So they've been working on this propaganda since 2010. And by, by them, you mean who? You mean oh, I'm sorry. I should say that the Iranian regime spends lots of money. I don't know how much. Lots of money uh, to infiltrate the West. So they have lobbyists in D.C. who do a very good, very good job to support the regime's agenda. And it and they're very very effective. And so they started spreading this narrative that yeah. yeah. And there's even there's even human so-called human rights people in in America who are subscribed to the same narrative. Hmm. 
Yes. Now, ultimately, this is the narrative that made uh, the Iran deal in 2013-2014 possible. Yes. yes. Because it, it, it presented anyone who's against the deal as pro-war, and unfortunately that also included human rights activists such as yourself, who was yes. definitely not for war. Yes. So for me, on the outside, looking in, I never thought that the the threat of war was real because I know Iran is a country that is often underestimated by the West. It's a very uh, strong country. The regime, although they are weak in many ways, there's a reason they have been in power for four decades. Iranians, it's not like they love this regime and they love not having their basic human rights. They have tried to create change. This is a regime that is brilliant in, in suppressing civil society and, and staying in power and convincing the world that they're not even a dictatorship. Like you see people on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. They think, oh, they have elections. Yeah. And so we should never underestimate the regime. So that, and that's why I never thought, and I never underestimate the regime. And that's why I never thought a war was really possible because I know a war in Iran would, I would think, would lead to a World War III. Or some type of global devastation and destruction, mm. worse than what's happening in Syria today. Mm. And so that's why I never really thought it was that possible. But you know, the threat of war was so real. I mean, sorry, sorry, so strong, mm. the narrative of it, that even people in Iran were, you know, were scared. Were, of course, they mm. were scared. Even some of my colleagues today uh, who are living in exile, they were telling me, like, the threat of war was really real in Iran, mm. or at least it seemed real to us. I mean, uh, I mean, they, they, they amplified the threat to the point that. For people, it seemed like, oh, this is this is something that's so such a serious threat that we have to, you know, we have to do anything to avoid it. Absolutely, and I and I totally blame Netanyahu and Ted Cruz and anybody else at that time who was threatening war with Iran as yeah. well. They helped strengthen the regime's propaganda. All these people who claim to be against the regime, they're fine with the regime for as long as they stop their nuclear capabilities. I mean, that's that's the important, I think that's, that's a key point over here. It's not like they, they it's like they, they actually are invested in Iran being a, a stable liberal democracy. Yeah. They simply don't want the threat of, of a nuclear Iran. Yeah, they just want to feel safe themselves. Again, so from 2013 to 2014, my life was very dark too because of basically, I was bullied online. I was attacked. All these bots appeared out of nowhere, attacking right. me. And and I, th- I believe that this is it was around that this time that what's his name Ben Rhodes who was an advisor to to uh, to Obama uh-huh. actually talked about how even bragged about how they drove this narrative and drove people drove people crazy. This attempt to to make anybody who's against the deal appear to be demonized and yeah. you know pro war. Absolutely. So it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't organic. Oh, no, I'm, I'm telling you, they spent lots and lots of money. And it started in 2010, this whole anti, it started with the whole anti-war movement, anti-sanctions. And I will say on record, I am against war. I am against isolation. And I'm, and I'm not against engagement in any way. But any engagement that does not put human rights at the top of the agenda, I think it's ineffective. It's inefficient. And it will not produce the desired results. And so as a result of that, I, I was silent about, I mean, sometimes I would voice my opinion about the nuclear talks and stuff. I was never, I have never advocated against it strongly, but I've never advocated for it either. And I'm glad I didn't. And all of us who didn't are very happy that we never jumped on that train because it was, it was very enticing for many people to jump on that train. 
because it would have gotten you a verified Twitter account. It would have it it would have gotten you it would have gotten you many many followers. Well, you probably work at a think tank. You probably like get a lot of uh, you know job offers. Oh, you would have been you would have been a star in the media. I could have capitalized on that so badly. I could have made a new image for myself if I was doing it for myself. Mm. If I was doing it, but I wasn't. And it just seemed wrong. It seemed wrong. And I see pe- and I see these people who I know are not real activists, who are just in it for themselves, growing in popularity. And I'm watching this happen in silence. And I just kept on telling myself, Mariam, just be patient. Mm. Just follow your heart and be smart. And focus on the human rights. And I'm so glad I did that because look at where we are today. So I, I want to I want to bring it back to twenty seven sorry to twenty seventeen with the the the, uh, the protest wave the massive protest wave that we've seen in December and January uh, mm-hmm. January twenty eighteen yeah uh, because this was a generation that was probably not even born when the Iranian Revolution nineteen seventy nine happened exactly this is a completely new generation yep and they 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 only knew they've only ever grew up knowing nothing but the Iranian regime yep. I remember I was very emotional. I was like thinking about you. I'm like, this, you know, how is she taking it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, when those protests started, it's always a bittersweet feeling because you know people are going to die. You know that there's going to be a lot of devastation that ensues. And you know that as an activist, you're going to have a lot of work afterwards, working on prisoner news and all that. Maybe I can tell you how, what, what, what was the mood on our side, on the Arab side, we felt that, hey, the people of the region have been completely suppressed. Mm-hmm. We've been completely suppressed, and it's nothing but the dictators now. And suddenly, we have people chanting for freedom in Iran. It was just such a powerful moment for oh, us. It was such a beautiful moment. And these were such significant protests because, for many reasons, but two main reasons is because they did not resemble, they didn't follow the same patterns as the other protests that we had seen in Iran since 1979. Since 1979, most protests that occurred in Iran started in the universities. Mm. And we saw that these protests started in Mashhad. Uh, they started with the lower middle class, the lower socioeconomic classes. So they didn't start in the affluent communities that's in Tehran or exactly. you know, middle class people. We didn't actually see protests in Tehran until I believe the third day or something like that. So it was very, very fascinating. And then another fascinating thing was that Protests occurred in every single province in Iran. Mm. I, we could not believe it. Like, there was protests in villages that we've never even heard of before. Wow. Villages that don't even have running water. And this, this kind of reminds, <laughs> reminds of the Syrian revolution, by the way, because mm. when the Syrian uprising started, it put certain villages on the map that we never heard of before. Yeah. And it's just, for me, and, and then for me, another beautiful thing was seeing, like, the minority regions in Iran, where there's, like, you know majority Arab or majority Kurd or uh, Azerbaijani and everybody protested and they were all together and that was for me as someone who loves all Iranians and all of Iran I was of course it brought tears to my eye it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen and I felt this energy you know you feel energized anytime Iranians are speaking out I feel so energized you feel hopeful they are the hope, the ones inside. They just need support. And, you know, recently I've been asked a lot with, with frustration from people. Mm. Miriam, you keep on saying support Iranian support. What do you mean? How can we support? Mm. I'm like, look, it's really simple. But 
It's so simple that you think it's naive and you don't want to do it. Mm. That's the problem. What Iranians need are two things. They need technological support. And then people say, well, Miriam, what does that mean? Mm. Well, the speed of the internet is very, very slow. And they have to use proxies and VPNs to access the internet. But even with those proxies and VPNs, it takes so long to load a page. It's like psychological torture trying to check an uh, email or check your Facebook updates. So help Iranians gain more, better access to yeah. the internet. People tell me, well, how can we do that? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not a techie. The techies have to figure that out. Mm. The governments have to figure that out. Mm. They are the ones that know. Mm. But I'm just letting you know what we need. Mm. This is what we need. Go find the solution. But who is working on it? I don't know. Who's helping Iranians gain better access to the internet? I, I don't see much happening with that. Mm. Uh, so that's number one. Why is that important? Well, because the more Iranians have better access to the internet, number one, you're sending a message that you care about them, that you're with them. And mm. you, Which is very important psychologically. This is all psychological. Mm. Iranians have shown that they're willing to fight, they're willing to be in the streets, they're willing to protest, they're willing to risk their lives. But they're not willing to do any of that if they feel that no one is listening. Mm. So it is psychological. Like The more we speak out about Iranian human rights situation, you're not alone. We're with you. And we're saying this publicly. And sometimes it's as simple as retweeting. Retweeting. And it has made a difference. We have seen that it makes a difference. Because the Iranian regime, as much as they're shameless, they also care, they care in a strange way about their image. Mm. They don't want to seem like they want to give this illusion that there are some sort of de- democratic system. They're responsible yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So they do care when celebrities start talking about human rights in Iran. So if we want to empower Iranian civil society and strengthen it, we cannot remove the regime. We cannot create regime change. But what we can do is empower the Iranian people. And ultimately, they're the ones who will do it. Yes. And the way to empower Iranian people is to talk about the human rights situation in Iran, to just to tell them we care. Mm. We care about you. You deserve basic human rights, too. And the reason why Iranians, like, for instance, my whole strategy was to get you involved with the Arash case and then hopefully get some really big retweets. Mm. And um, and the reason I didn't go and do it with Iranians to start is because Iranians have, they've been beaten down so many times. They don't, first of all, don't like to talk about human rights. Mm. And you also, you also lo- you lose a s- sense of self-worth. And then but when they see Gary Lineker talk about it, they think, Wow, Gary Lineker cares about Arash? Mm. And then they're like, okay, if Gary Lineker cares about Arash, then this gives them... It gives them the the boost. The boost to talk about Arash too. So I want every celebrity, every even if you're not a celebrity, even if you're not an activist, even if you have only 20 followers, Mm. you can make a difference. You can can show that you care. You can show you care. You never know who is seeing your tweet. You never know where that tweet or Facebook post or YouTube vlog is going to lead. Mm. You never know. If you're a blogger, talk about the human rights situation. Sometimes you don't know what to talk about because it's so complicated. Contact me. You can. Yeah. My, my DMs are open to the public. Mm. Literally, anyone can contact me and ask me a question. I'm one of the few people that actually responds to people. Like I respond to if, if you're asking me out on a date, I'm not going to respond to you. <laughs> If you're telling me, if you're complimenting me on something unrelated to human rights, I'm not going to respond to you usually. But if you have a question about human rights in Iran, it is my duty to respond to you because it is my duty to help you understand 
and I'm more than willing to help. I hope you can tell from that why Maryam is someone we respect so much, not only for her near encyclopedic knowledge of protests, detainees and case details, and anything remotely related to human rights and freedom in Iran, but also her passion and the dedication she brings to the cause, which is inspiring. Maryam has just joined the team of the Human Rights Activists News Agency, a press association established by Iranian human rights activists to report and disseminate daily news of human rights violations in Iran. They publish an average of 7,000 human rights reports from Iran every year, and despite their large volume of work, they're incredibly underfunded, for many reasons, not least that they can't pay the majority of their activists who are inside Iran due to sanctions. They are registered in the US. They're not allowed to operate in Iran, even though they do secretly underground, and a large number of their members are in prison. Maryam is going to be growing their English section, so if you're looking for the most consistent and reliable human rights news from Iran, you should follow them. Their Twitter account is at H-R-A-N-A underscore English. As Maryam said, and as we've argued before, it's so important to bear witness, and to refuse to let those suffering be forgotten. That's the least we can do for them. And if you want to support them, I'm sure they would be extremely grateful if you get in touch. Maryam also asked for a correction to one of the dates. Around minute 21, she said that the solidarity protests in Iran for Egypt and Tunisia in 2011 were scheduled for February 12th. They were actually February 14th. The conversation with Maryam continues in the next episode, so stay tuned. If you want to find her on Twitter, her handle is at MaryamNayabYazd. You can find a link in the description of the podcast. Do tweet at us, our handles are in the description as well, and we'd love to hear what you thought of the episode. I'm Ahmed Gatnash, and this is the Arab Tyrant Manual Podcast, project of the Kawakibi Foundation. ويا زمان سيأتي يمحو زمان المزيف